John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition wherever you get your podcasts. From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount+. Plus. Yes! Hi, everybody. Hi. Yeah, that's right, Tony. I surprised you by starting. You did surprise me. You know, sometimes on this show, we don't say what the show is or who we are. Is that true? Well, one once. I feel like we always do. There's a hundred percent one. Uh huh. That came out. Is that when we got all those letters? Oh yeah. And people people were, were like, "Who are you? Yeah, Why did like, you do this? Angry. Who are? You? How'd you get in here?" Is what one of the letters yeah. just said, and I was like, "Get in where? I did yeah, this from yeah, my yeah. house." There were a lot of cuss words, and I felt yeah. like it was rude, like heck and dagnabbit. And I was like, "You know what?" <laughs> so somebody called us scallywags. Yeah, somebody said, "Ooh, you roustabouts! Why I oughta?" Man, the why I oughta <laughs> era. I don't know that roustabout. I don't know roustabout <laughs> is necessarily an insult. I think it's a job. What 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 are the duties of a roustabout? I think it's connected to the carnival world, and I think they have to just you know they have to be about and they have to roust. I thought it was like a troublemaker. I thought it was like a, an up to no good. Oh, did you just quote a phrase? All one word, up to no good. An up to no good. You know, <laughs> I, that term I'm not heard, but I really like it a lot. I don't know. If I, I just know it, it as a concept. I'm. <laughs> Well, here I am. I'm here to turn concepts into words. That's right. That's what we do on this show. Welcome to the Pod Directive. My name is Tawny Newsom. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Paul F. Tompkins. I am the remaining one of your hosts. We are hosting this show where we talk to people about Trek and all sorts of other things as well. Yep. Like apparently carnival occupations. Yeah. If you have a favorite carnival occupation, please let us know. Put it in the chat. Ooh, gotta be baby elephant cuddler. <laughs> I, I assume the babies need cuddling for a little while. I thought that was the job of the mama elephant, if Dumbo is to be believed. Mama elephants are wor- they are working moms at the carnival slash circus. They don't that's have time to be true. cuddling all day. They need help. It takes a village. Yeah, that's really true. And what better village than a carnival? <laughs> do I have carnival mixed up with circus? I don't know. We all do. And <laughs> it's a real problem that's never been fixed. Have I ever been to either? Um, Paul, <laughs> we have so enjoyed talking Star Trek and talking aliens with people. We talked about some aliens in this uh, in this little episode. It's true with Jamie Green, who had um, fa- really fascinating ideas about life on other planets and how it might not be mm, probably will not be like us, but with nose ridges. And um, I went through like a real emotional journey in this in this episode because it was an idea that I never really thought about that deeply. You know what I mean? When I thought about life on other planets and um, yeah, it really like kind of knocked me back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've just seen so many depictions of aliens that were, you know, in a humanoid body because actors needed to play them. 
it's it's interesting to reframe that. And um, yeah, it was a cool, cool convo with a, a another nerdy Trek fan who's also smart about something else. I think those are those are my favorites where it's like, oh, you're such a deep geek and we can geek out about this. But you're also teaching me things that I never would have learned <laughs> in theater school. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Ain't no way. True. Ain't no way I would have learned that's anything that she can talk about <laughs> in my BFA program. <laughs> Let me ask you this, mm-hmm. and I don't think we covered it in the episode, in the conversation we had with Jamie, but um, if alien life comes to Earth and it looks like E.T., would you be happy about that or would you be disappointed? Looks just like E.T.? Just like E.T. And sounds like E.T. too. You know what I'd do is I would be knocking on Mr. Spielberg's door and I'd be like, how, what, how, do you, how did you know? What happened here? Where did you, yeah. are you a time traveler? I'd be like, you're one of them Vulcans from Carbon Creek, aren't you? You're one of them yeah. secret Vulcans that crash landed on Earth and didn't tell nobody. I'd have questions for Mr. Spielberg. I'd immediately dispense with dealing with E.T. I'd be like, that's for the scientists to figure out. Well, now, if you recall the movie E.T., when the scientists got involved, it was not good. Exactly. So I'm, I'm, I need to shake the trees on You're gonna some You're going to leave E.T. to that fate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't give a damn. Is Somebody else can deal with it. repeats itself. I need to speak to <laughs> award-winning director Steven Spielberg about how the hell he knew. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. If you were in E.T.'s place and you go to another planet and some little uh, uh, alien boy leaves uh, candy on the ground, are you going to pick it up and eat it? Absolutely not. This place that is That was a bold choice. Earth is so filthy, I'm not eating anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is. Let's say you go to ET's planet. Oh, I go to ET's planet. It clean or filthy? We have no idea. Okay. What were they doing here? They were co- like collecting plants and whatever. I don't really remember ET. I'm realizing there's honestly not that much to remember. <laughs> you know what I want to watch again? ET comes here. It doesn't work out. He has to go back home. <laughs> what a summing up of the movie ET. <laughs> he simply must box. return home. <laughs> That's my litter box. Guy goes on a uh, trip, doesn't like it. <laughs> that's it. Got to go back. Um, that's it. All right. Well, we should get to our conversation with Jamie Green. Um, she She's fantastic. She's a freelance writer, editor, and a writing teacher. Um, she writes about books, culture, and science. Um, she's also the series editor for Best American Science and Nature Writing and a lecturer at Smith College. She also has a book that is out today. We talk about it a lot in the episode. The Possibility of Life is published by Hanover Square Press in the U.S., and it's out today, April 18th, this very day. Yes, I I cannot wait to pick it up. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think that our listeners will as well. Yeah. So here we go. Here's our chat with Jamie Green. Get the best merch in the universe with Star Trek products from ParamountShop.com. Shop Galaxy shirts, NX-01 hats, Starfleet Command sweatshirts, and more. You can take 20% off with code TREK20. That's 20% off at checkout on all Star Trek products with code TREK20 at ParamountShop.com. Hello to Jamie Green. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. 
oh, we had to have it. We had to have you. You had to have us. We had to all have it together. We're doing a great job. I want to talk to you a little bit about your book, just like jumping right in because you jump right into the Star Trek of it all. Mm -hmm. uh, your book, The Possibility of Life, which is going to be coming out this year, 2023. I don't know when this episode's coming out, but you know. Uh, safe to say 2023, <laughs> you uh, you jump right in and you talk about Star Trek a lot. You, you mention it a lot in your book. And I love that. And I want to know why. <laughs> Star Trek is just, it's foundational for me. It's foundational to the book and my interest in alien life. It's foundational to me and my relationship to science and sci-fi. And I mean, it was, I remember when I wrote the first line of the book, which is literally, of course, we start with Star Trek because like, yeah. of course we start with Star Trek. Like, we yeah. have to. And it's also in the book a lot because it has a lot of really interesting um, intersections with real science in fantastical and like very scientific ways. So it was just really, um, it was really useful for what I was trying to do in the book, but also it's just like all up in my heart. So of course it's in the book a lot. Yeah. Of course. Of all sci-fi shows, it's one of the only ones, if not the only that I can think of, that is about exploration. That is about, like, are we, is there, who who else is out there and let's go see, as opposed to we're trying to get back home or we're adrift or whatever. It's it's just about wanting to know and wanting to meet other, you know, civilizations. And that idea, I think, we've lived so long with the idea of uh, not still not knowing if there's anybody out there. Um, but, but I think a lot of us feeling like there has to be, there must be something somewhere. It must be, even if it's so far away. Is that an idea that you have always held? It used to be. And I actually think the more I've learned about the science and the more I've had to engage with it and figure out what I think about everything, I, I came out of the book feeling less sure, mm. but mm. also kind of caring less. Ooh, I like that. Wait, why Why do you care less? Writing the book, you know, I write a lot about exoplanets and technology and language and all the different ways that other intelligent aliens might be. But I also write about biology, what we think alien biology might be. And in order to understand that, I had to understand a lot about the origin of life on Earth and how evolution works and the things that we think might be universal that turn out to just be how it is on Earth. And there are so many little flukes that led to us being here, us being the way we are. And some of them do seem like, well, of course it has to work that way. It's so useful to have two arms and two legs and a head up top. But we have a really hard time imagining outside of those constraints, imagining outside of what's familiar. Mm. And so, I, you know... I started feeling less and less sure that, oh, well, if it's here, it's everywhere. Of course, of course, of course, there's so much space. How could it not be full of life? But the reason I stopped caring so much is because the more I learned about life on Earth and the origin of life and like how cells work and all of these really nitty gritty biology things that I, I didn't study biology really since high school. I just, it was so amazing. And it started feeling so amazing that there is life here at all. And there's so much that we don't understand and there's so much to learn. And so much life on Earth is so weird and so alien. Even like, yeah. yes, deep sea stuff. Like it's mind-blowingly strange. But then also you look at a bird 
And you're like, what the heck? <laughs> what is it doing? Oh, you're speaking <laughs> right to Paul's heart with that. You're speaking right to Paul's heart. What is a bird and why is a bird? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Paul's had a long held. Paul, do you want to get into this or, or, or should I? I just have a weird thing with, <laughs> with yeah. birds, I guess. He doesn't like them. Oh. I mean, I honestly, I really do. But I do get, I can get mad at a bird. Like if I see a bird walking, <laughs> like, what are you doing? You have the power of flight. Yeah. Why are you walking around? I think that too. Yeah. If I see a bird walking, I'm like, you're not doing How it right. How dare you? It makes me laugh when a bird is in the airport. Well, I don't like, think you, the you don't even know what's happy going. about that either. I mean, no. it's They're like, I, it makes me feel like, yeah, you don't even know what's going on here, dude. We, <laughs> we, we're doing the thing that you do. <laughs> this is where we fly. Yeah. Get out of here. But then when you see, I live near a pond, and when I see ducks flying, I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, guys, you've overextended yourselves. You're great on the yeah. water. This is not, you've lost touch. <laughs> they just need to find more ponds. They look they so They do awkward. seem unwieldy. They seem unwieldy. You ever seen a chicken fly for a little too long? Oh. It's like a little flutter <laughs> a little or a glide hard. is okay. But when they when they got a, like a longer commute, I'm like, mm. baby, yeah. baby, get down on the ground. Just yeah, it's over for you. Sometimes just it makes me feel I like, mean, <laughs> makes me feel they have a secret when they when they fly that long. Like, hold on a second. Did you <laughs> just you notice that I was here and that's why you stopped? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so birds are weird. We all agree. Thank <laughs> yes. you. It's good to get it like scientifically on record. Birds are mm -hmm. weird. Official. That's the pod directive uh, opinion. <laughs> um, but yeah, but you do note in the book that like you say that the search for our search for life on other planets is narrow because it's based on what we know of humanoids, like our carbon based, you know, searching for water, searching for carbon, ser searching for the types of conditions where a body like ours would thrive. So it, do you have thoughts about how like that consistent portrayal of alien species as being humanoid contributes to narrow like because yeah. in star trek most of the aliens we see are humanoid-ish because all we did was put some putty on a, a, a guest actor's forehead in 1992 mm -hmm. um not all we do the makeup artists are incredible i'm not reducing it but i'm saying <laughs> that that was easier than creating a whole cg like sparkle entity being just because of where the tech mm -hmm. was at the time so do you think that depictions like that in star trek and other media has limited our actual human search for what life could be like it's informed the scientific search? I don't think it's necessarily constrained the scientific search because if you don't, like one of the reasons I hear when you ask scientists, like, why are you looking so narrowly? Why are you being so unimaginative? Not that I would ever put it to them like that. But <laughs> you, you get two answers. One is answers for scientific reasons why things like water and carbon are special and might be universal. Like water is an amazing solvent Mm. And carbon is able to build really long repeating molecules, you know, and so it becomes an important background. Like we call it organic chemistry. That literally means carbon chemistry, life chemistry. It's all the same thing. But the other reason that scientists constrain their search to, to things that are similar to Earth or Earth life is because they say you got to start somewhere. We got to mm -hmm. narrow the search somewhere. One of the most amazing discoveries of the last few decades is that there are exoplanets everywhere. Like if you point to a star in the sky, odds are it has a planet. And wow. that's just like, how do you choose where yeah. to start? And so yeah. we don't know how life could form on gas giants or on in methane oceans or made with silicone. But we do know 
that life can start with water and with carbon. So like, I don't know, why not start there? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. in terms of Star Trek, I actually think Star Trek does an amazing job of pushing against that familiarity. Like, yes, the recurring cast, the people we see every week are, they got legs, they got arms, they got heads, right? Because again, actors and, and yeah. that's what we're working with. But, you know, there are so many episodes of Star Trek where there's an energy being or there's a little baby space whale thing that's trying to suckle the energy off the, the Enterprise. <laughs> or there's Q, which is just like, he shows up looking like a guy. That does not mean that he is a humanoid. Yeah. You know, just mm -hmm. like things that are beyond the science we know or just entirely beyond our comprehension. And I've always really appreciated, even when I was a kid, I would watch those episodes and then think like, huh, how could that be possible? How mm. could there be you know, consciousness in a blob of energy. What would that mm -hmm. mean scientifically? So I think rather than constraining us, Star Trek, and this is not just me kissing up, I promise. I, <laughs> I think Star Trek does try to stretch our imaginations about what life could look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I also think as long as we're kissing up, I mean, the, you know, our animated shows, which obviously Paul and I are a little biased about, but, you know, with Lower Decks and Prodigy, we're able to, mm -hmm. the creators of both of those shows were very adamant about wanting to use the animation, use the medium as a way to present more alien species that are just harder to present in live action yeah. and to present yeah. different looking things. And that leads me to my next question for Paul. Paul, are you mad that you play a bird? on Lower Decks. Has that <laughs> been torturing you and bothering you this whole time? And I'd like you to air that out here. I think because he's a bird man, it makes it easier. Okay. Um, because he's mostly just bird on uh, from the neck up. Neck up, neck up bird, yeah. Okay, but he can still wear a, a nice suit. Yeah, he dresses nicely. Okay. I one of the One of the earliest ideas of that for me was on the original series, where um, the the Horda on the mm -hmm, Devil in the mm -hmm. Dark episode, which I remember as a kid being struck by that. And I couldn't quite, mm. like I was little and I couldn't quite grasp, like, I don't get what they're doing. But I I rewatched TOS um, last year and um, that episode is so much uh, better and more interesting than I remembered it being in my, in my mind, you know. Um, the idea of, of them encountering a life form that they just missed because they weren't mm -hmm. looking for what they thought they should be looking for. Um, mm -hmm. And the idea that life can exist, it, like the idea, do you think that we, we have, we have like been face to face with a life form that we did not realize was a life form because Ooh. it just didn't have the signs that we were looking for? It's entirely possible. There's this whole idea of the shadow biosphere on Earth. So all life that we know on Earth had a common origin, like a, a literal single blob. Um, and we all trace back to that, which is why all life on Earth uses DNA and similar chemistry. And there are like slight variations, but we're all on one tree. But we don't know that there weren't multiple origins of life right here on Earth mm. with different chemistries, with different ways of storing information, different ways of making energy. And if they're different enough, our detection would not be able to find them. We're looking for the signature. When we say we're looking for the chemical signatures of life, for the most part, we're looking for life that metabolizes like we metabolize and makes energy like we do and has the same signatures. So there's not like a shadow biosphere bear 
walking around, we would <laughs> see that. But in terms of microscopic life, we don't really know because we wouldn't yeah. know how to look for it. There would be ways to find it. Like if we saw, um, if the chemistry of an environment was sort of out of balance in a suspicious way, if there was a lot of some molecule that normally breaks down, that wouldn't like accumulate, you know, um, then we would say that's suspicious. What is creating that? Geology as we know it can't churn up whatever that molecule is. And so that could be a clue, but otherwise. And so I'm not saying that people think there is definitely this shadow biosphere hanging out on Earth, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. we don't know that it's not. And I also just think the name shadow biosphere is awesome. So I like bringing it's it very up. Cool. Oh, it's great it's and scary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's punk rock as hell. I really like it. Um, I do choose to believe there is a shadow bear that's walking around, though, that we can't see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> got to. And he's got to be, like, kind of scary, but also kind of cute. That's so what he's wearing a little hat, on. for sure. Yeah. Oh, that, you know, the shadow, the shadow biosphere bear is wearing <laughs> a hat. Shadow hat. He's eating shadow picnic baskets. <laughs> 100%. So last season, we talked to Dr. Doug Vacock and Anson Mount, our own Captain Pike, uh, about METI and mm -hmm. their drive to make contact with alien life. And so we asked them this question, and I want to ask you the same one. Should we already be working? Basically, like, are we late? Should we already have a prime directive? Should we already have started as Earth to be like, hey, we got to come up with some rules. We got to come up with some stuff we definitely don't mess with when we run into these new folks. Like, what? What are, are we behind on this? I would say yes and no. I think in terms of Medi and SETI and just the searches that we're doing, we could stumble across someone any day, but someone could stumble across us. Mm -hmm. any moment either if they don't have a prime directive you know but um like yes medi as both like an organization and as a practice like people can just do whatever they want if i have the money to build the equipment or to rent time on a transmitter i can just start sending messages wherever um mm -hmm. so in that sense like yes we have the technology and we don't have the um the directive to go along with it but on the other hand, if I look at humanity and how many different issues I think we should have come to a collective agreement on, this is like a very low priority. You know, like maybe sure. we could all decide like human rights, you know, things like that. So if, I, <laughs> yeah. if it's like, yeah. look, we've got we've got two hours at the U.N. What are we going to all decide on? Um, I love space and science, but there's like humanity overall has a problem getting on the same page about things. Yeah. So yes. in terms of are we behind? No, because we don't have the collective, uh, you know, cooperation that would be necessary to do that. Yeah. The yeah. house is a mess. It's not time to have a dinner party. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless it's a cleanup dinner party where your friends come over <laughs> to help you clean and you make them Ooh. dinner. Or just like order pizza. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You don't want to yeah. make Come clean hard. my house with me. I'll, I'll order you pizza. What if we like, offered yeah. Life on Other Planets pizza and beer to come here? <laughs> we oh, might please. be the only place with those. How cool. Like, right. guys, it's very do you guys know about pizza and beer? So this is what's going in my Medi message. I don't I'm just know, saying pizza guys. and beer. Here we when are. You're, when you're a grown-up uh, planet like Earth is, you you hire interstellar movers. You don't ask. <laughs> That's right. You don't ask uh, <laughs> sentient life from other planets to come and help you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I uh, I would like the uh, the thing in the prime prime directive that's just like 
don't give them tech they don't have yet. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's going to be a problem for us. I think <laughs> if we get found, I think we're going to be behind and we're going to need the tech. So, Well, this was another thing we talked about with Dr. Doug was what if, what if we finally meet like the idealized, you know, sort of humanoid, you know, mm-hmm. other civilization and they're just the same level as us. Like they, oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they don't have any new stuff to offer us. They don't have any insights. We, we it's just like, yeah, our planet sucks other. too. Yeah. We're like, oh, you guys are still just like messing around with taxes and watching reality TV. You're just blue or whatever. This is dumb. Uh, <laughs> messing around with taxes. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's, let's get into some Star Trek. All right. What was your first contact with Trek. Where did it start? Where did little baby Jamie go? This is for <laughs> me. She was she was very much a baby. Um, I think I was about eight or nine years old. And so that would have put it around um, Next Generation season three or four. Mm-hmm. I actually, because, you know, I was seven or eight or nine, I don't have super clear memories of it. So I called my dad recently and asked him because my Star Trek origin story is... My dad got me started watching Star Trek and we watched it together with Next Generation, like when it was airing. Um, And my parents were divorced and I think it aired on the weekends. So it was when I was at my dad's house and we would watch it together. And then um, when I got older, the custody schedule changed or the night that the show was airing changed. And so instead of watching it together, I would watch at my mom's house and he would watch at his house. And then every commercial break, I would run into the kitchen and the phone would ring and we would talk about what had just happened. And then he'd be Aww. like, oh, it's coming back. And I'd say, okay, I'll talk to you next commercial break and Aww. click and <laughs> run so away. It's, yeah, it was just like very foundational in a lot of ways. And I asked him because I, I didn't know if he was just like, oh, I think Jamie would like this show or if he just wanted to watch it and my sister and I were around. And so he doesn't remember. You know, he had watched the original series when he was growing up and it was just something that he shared with me. And mm-hmm. so we, you know, watched all the way through Next Generation. Um, we wow. watched Voyager. I vividly remember I was listening to your episode with um, Dr. Erin McDonald, mm-hmm. and she was talking about thresholds, and I was like, ah, yes, the episode at which my dad and I said, you know what, we're we're done. Thank uh, you. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, no, geez. both of you were done? Yeah. Yeah, and I at some point I want to go and, like, finish it. And, you know, since then I've had, you know, I've, I've filled in some gaps. I'm not sure. a completist, but just starting that young yeah. – and having it be such a bonding thing for me and my dad, it's just like, it's very, very special to me. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that. So it's wrapped up with all this nostalgia for mm-hmm. your, your dad and the relationship. We talk to so many people who that's the case. They have like a sister or a cousin or someone. And so their memory of this series and watching it is bound to their memories of of this relationship or this family member. Yeah. I think it's sweet. Your book literally starts, as you said, with talking about the next generation. You lead readers in specifically talking about uh, season six, episode 20 of the next generation, The Chase. Mm-hmm. The Chase. What is it about this episode, this ragtag group of of different aliens all running around the universe together, trying to piece together a, a treasure map uh, to figure out the secrets of human life that interested you so keenly? I think it's just, it's a perfect encapsulation of so many things that I wanted to write about in the book. Like, first of all, in terms of how sci-fi imagines aliens, in some ways you can look at this episode as a retconning for like, okay, why are they all human? Why do they all look like people Mm -hmm. with pointy Mm -hmm. ears or a little putty stuck on their forehead? And it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, there's actually a very deep reason for that. And it also 
gets at a lot of questions about wanting to not be alone, looking for connection and community. The, mm-hmm. um, you know, ancestor aliens who seeded fragments of of her message in DNA on like 19 different planets wanted to bring their descendants together. And they're like, in order for you to be able to play this message, you had to collaborate. You had to come together, which, of course, is not what happened. You've got Cardassian <laughs> there being like, mm, I don't like this. And the Klingon's like, I would kill her if I could. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just like not happening. But And the Romulans are like, we've been stalking y'all and we'll kill everybody here. We don't care right. about any of you. <laughs> and then like Picard and Crusher are like, well, we just got some completely world-changing information, but I guess we'll go back to the ship and never talk about it again. That's that's the other thing about this episode. Like if you found out that all of the humanoid species that you knew, some of whom are friends, some of whom are foes, Mm -hmm. all had this common ancestry. We're all created by this ancient, ancient species of aliens. Mm -hmm. Like wouldn't that change anything? Yeah. (laughs) Wouldn't that change how connected we might feel? Right. And it's that sense of connection that, so much of the search for life beyond Earth is looking for. Like, we want to know, are we alone? We Mm want to know, is there anyone out there that we could talk to, that we could share information with, that we could learn from? Not just their technology, but, like, I would be so fascinated to hear an alien language and to learn, does it work like a human language or is it totally, totally different? Is it vocal? Do they have words? Do they have grammar? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And in Star Trek, they've found a lot of that and they're doing that exploration to try to find more and learn more and learn about all the different ways that life manifests in the galaxy but there's still this this deeper thing of like what's what does it mean mm-hmm. why are we all here she's literally telling them why yeah. do humans and vulcans and klingons and cardassians exist or romulans mm-hmm. so it's like so profound and it's got that little wink of like here's why they're all humanoid and i just yep. i just love all that it also has like resonances with other sci-fi like this idea of an early ancient race seeding their dna with like slight variations is also in some of ursula Le Guin's novels um and it's just it feels like a it just branches off in so many directions and really gets at that question that i that i start the book with which is like where did we come from how does life start and then, like, how does life end up being like us? And might that happen anywhere else? Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I absolutely love it. And I also love, in, in the best Trek fashion, it, it is also the exercise of a, uh, of a kind of a sitcom trait of, like, a bunch of people who think they have nothing in common coming together. And then it's like, ugh, the real chase was the friends we made along the way. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you get the totally. Romulan guy at the end being like, hey, Picard, maybe one day we could be friends, you know? Right. On the topic of you coming to the conclusion that, or, or, or coming to the supposition that we we might very well be uh, all alone as humanoids, but that you don't care, uh, <laughs> that you don't have to care about it, um, it does get into another very common Trek thing of other races being fascinated by human beings and how you of all creatures are the most amazing. <laughs> and it's like, I, I, you know, certainly it's nice to believe that. Um, but I guess it could go either way that, that for, I, I feel like I'm being a downer this season of the podcast, <laughs> but um, it does it like the idea that we could just be this, um, this weird aberration of life, just like any other 
uh, life form is. Just the same as a salamander is, we are these things, you know. Mm -hmm. There is something that's very lonely about that to me, mm -hmm. you know, that I guess it's, and, and I guess it's how we feel is, I don't want it to just be us. Like, I want there to be oh, some other friends. thing that had a similar journey. And it's mm -hmm. like, wow, can you believe it? We found each other, you know. But I guess the, what you're saying is to, uh, you have to really revel in the, the, how fascinating it all is and how weird and strange and unusual that we're here at all um, is. And, and, you know, look at that. Yeah. And also that there is lots of life on this planet that we can have that same, um, you know, not conversation necessarily, but there is just as much to try to understand, you know, like people will say, we don't need to leave earth to find another intelligence. We have it. We mm -hmm. have dolphins, we have crows, mm -hmm. we have squids, you know, like there mm -hmm. is a lot of different kinds of intelligence. What we don't have is, um, I was going to say tool using, but, but chimps use tools, mm -hmm. crows use tools, you know, mm -hmm. like we don't have another technological intelligent species like that is definitely you know if, if you don't count sticks right so but that is you gotta one thing. count them you gotta, you count, gotta count sticks but that is one thing that this really forces you to come face to face with which is like why isn't a dolphin enough why isn't right. no offense paul a bird enough <laughs> <laughs> and a bird in a little suit though revolutionary mm, just a uh, little head love, love it. to see it absolutely but it also um you know the idea of an alien looking at us and saying you're special or you're like this. I mean, part mm -hmm. of that is due to the way that the other major alien species on Star Trek are imagined. It's like humans are humans. And then every other, especially tracing back to the original series, every other major species has one trait. They are logical. <laughs> yes, they exactly. are aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, even, yeah. you know. Um, and so that is a little bit reductive. But in Star Trek and in other sci-fi, you also see this desire to see ourselves through other people's eyes. Mm -hmm. For someone to put us in context of that broader population, that broader community, um, and say like, oh, humans are very, like I've seen this in lots of different sci-fi. Sometimes it's humans are very imaginative. Sometimes it's humans are very um, hierarchical. Mm -hmm. um, humans dream a lot humans have lots of big yeah. feelings like yeah, all these yeah. different things we we want to say like okay what do we look like to you because we're the only example that we know mm -hmm. it would be really funny if like we met other aliens and like oh you guys are the logical ones we're like oh no uh, <laughs> wait you need to see some other ones of us before you decide that um well you talking about this uh brings me to think about the other episode that you named as a favorite which was uh the nth degree uh next generation season four episode 19 classic barkley episode classic Barkley, mm. Barkley hooks himself up to the computer after meeting up with this weirdo alien probe at a space array and then all of a sudden his intelligence goes bonkers and he's like having debates with Albert Einstein all night my favorite thing about this is like the way Barkley's written it's literally like Deanna Troy and the other women on the ship being like wait a minute suddenly this guy is smart and smooth there has to be an alien in his brain which is <laughs> such an epic drag of Barkley but he truly just like had swagger and could act all of a sudden like he's in Beverly's acting class like That's doing right. well and everyone's like something is wrong um, <laughs> but what happens at the end what ultimately happens at the end is we find out that he was being used by this you know alien entity I forgot what they're called they're called like the 
Corinthians or the Calistogans <laughs> or something um, to bring species to bring the enterprise to them because the way this species was exploring the galaxy was by not leaving home. They were just bringing other species and entities to them to look at them and do exactly what you just described. Uh, look at Picard and go, oh, you guys are hierarchical. Oh, you guys have a command structure. Oh, you're inquisitive. Uh, Kendra, producer Kendra the says they're called the Cytherians. I I would not have remembered that. Thank you. I prefer Calistogans. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it, it is interesting in that, you know, and I think it said they spent like a week or 10 days or something together after that in Picard's log where he's like, yeah, this is how we exchanged information with these beings, telling them basically what humans are like. But yeah, it, it was interesting to watch that being look at Picard and go like, okay, this is, this is first blush. This is what I think humans are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I also love that in that, um, end of the episode log entry, he says that they've left with all of this information from the Cytherians that it's going to take humans decades and decades mm. to go through. And I, I love that idea of just the the ongoing study that would mm. be necessary. That like, yes, there are those snap judgments. And a lot of things happen very quickly and very smoothly in Star Trek because of universal translators and the limits of episode lengths. But sure. uh, <laughs> But it's really just like, Okay, we've we now have like their encyclopedia. Let's spend like now there is a a new department at Starfleet that is like Cytherian studies and mm-hmm. they're going to be yeah. scholars and they're going to be like all right, let's let's learn about this new this new species and their planet. Yeah, some new cadet at Starfleet Academy is going to have like a specialty in Cytherian communications and <laughs> yeah, you know, exploratory tactics or something, which is all because Barkley wasn't good at being in a play. That that's guy. All, that's where it all. I, I kind of feel like he was more trouble than he was worth. And the fact that he <laughs> stayed in Starfleet for such a long time. Yeah. And it's like he was always a problem. Always a problem. And a yeah. guy who not not part of the regular <laughs> cast, not part of the main cast. Anytime no. he showed up, it was like, oh, this but, guy's uh, going to cause a problem. Yeah. But I just, I love the Barkley episodes. And I, oh, I rewatched- absolutely. I rewatched that episode last night because I don't know if I had seen it since it aired or definitely Mm -hmm. not in many, many years, but it was just lodged in my brain. I mean, that image of him hooked up to the computer with the light beams behind him is just like so iconic to me. Oh my gosh, Um, yes. But I realized part of why I love that episode and the other Barkley episodes, because he's not uh, charming until, but he's so lovable because he's an under, he's such an underdog. But also everyone else in the main cast is competent. They're Mm -hmm. always good Mm -hmm. at what they do. And I realized they're always solving problems that are like external, Mm -hmm. you know, and Barkley's like working on Barkley. Mm -hmm. And I just really appreciate how flawed he is. And yes, maybe he shouldn't have made it into Starfleet, but... (laughs) If we think about how many people are in Starfleet, is it possible that there are that many thousands and thousands of people who are as competent and confident and skilled as the main crew? Absolutely. No, there have got to be some some dopes. And I just, I love, I love feeling, oh, another dope. Hello. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, I mean, yeah, it's almost like, I mean, the Barkley episodes were definitely some of the, some inspiration for some of our Lower Decks episodes. Our showrunner, mm-hmm. Megan yeah. Bannis, talked about that. Because this one kind of is, like, the the arc of this almost is how Lower Decks episodes are structured. Because the B story here of Barkley being bad at stuff and trying to get better at them becomes the A story mm-hmm. as he takes over the ship. I, I agree with you about him sitting in that chair. And that moment where he's, he sits down in the chair and he's like, computer, da-da-da-da, hook me up through a neural patch, whatever. And the computer's like, 
we we ain't got that yet. And he's like, don't worry. Here's how you build it. <laughs> if I was ma- if I was doing that scene now, there would be like the most ripping guitar solo right after that. <laughs> Here's how you build it. <laughs> I also very lo- cool. I like speaking of the B plotness of that episode. It also shows you so much of the other going goings on on the ship like he's got his scene study class with Beverly and they talk about music group and how he's teaching violin even though he's never learned it (laughs) and he's asking Deanna to go on a walk in the Arboretum Mm -hmm. what Arboretum do we ever see the Arboretum ever on TNG (laughs) Um, like we oh wait no I'm thinking of Deep Space Nine because Keiko's uh in there a lot but oh that's right yeah I don't know Kendra will tell us if I'm I don't know yeah I'm just like really curious if it gets mentioned like i had no idea there was an arboretum but he's like oh she says we see it in three episodes we see it in three episodes oh no oh no i must think well i'll I'll sign off now bye (laughs) i must be thinking that those are deep space nine episodes um she says it's in the next generation transfigurations an Mm. episode called dark page an episode called oh and night terrors okay okay this is coming back to me now well Everyone, we can do a deep dive on the on Trek Arboretum <laughs> sightings. Uh, that could be a whole episode of this podcast. Which obviously I will not be the guest on. <laughs> no, we'll get some freaky punk rock arbalist to come on and <laughs> talk to us about space trees. Space trees, yeah. Arborist? I don't know, yeah, but I probably. I do know it's not arbalist. <laughs> you know why? Because in Spanish, mm-hmm, it's arbol. Oh, yeah. Okay. I just know Biblioteca. That's as far as I got. <laughs> okay, well, that used to be a tree. Um, <laughs> every part of a Biblioteca used to be a tree. Oh, okay. We have talked all things Arboretums. I feel confident that we've covered more than any other Star Trek podcast has ever talked about the Arboretums. Yeah. Uh, and if it hasn't, if we haven't, please feel free to point it out and send us some maps. Um, <laughs> I dare you. I dare you. Uh, I do want to ask, because uh, we were told that you used to write a column on romance novels for the New York Times. Yeah. I want to know if you got any favorite uh, favorite epic Trek romances, any 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 bodice-ripping uh, worthy moments from Trek. When I was re-watching The Chase, a lot of it is conversations between... Picard and Dr. Crusher mm-hmm. and at one she like comes in in the morning for tea and they're chatting but then the, the other one starts with them both in his quarters with tea and then she's mm-hmm. like well time to start the day I'll see you later and I'm like uh-huh what's going on yeah. because yep. I remember when I was a kid watching the show always feeling really caught off guard by the romance episodes like all of a sudden you know Riker and Troy would be like together and I was like yeah. I, what did I miss I think because as a kid I wasn't picking up on the cues or I just wasn't remembering that. Mm -hmm. And it would just seem like all of a sudden people were together. And then at the end, there's like the Picard and Crusher romance, right? Yeah. I think. That's seeded throughout. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's very much intermittent. Yeah. Where it, like it will go a whole, it'll be pop up in a season and then you won't, there won't be any mention of it again until the following season. It's not like it's an ongoing thing like Riker and Troy. Um, Yeah. And rewatching it recently, you do feel how like sporadic it is. Yeah. And so it's like, and you guys are just like in love and doing your jobs and day to day. So, so for me, it has never been like a, it's sort of been a little separate from my interest in romance because I think it just confused me so much as a kid yeah. because it was just popping up and I was like, hold, yeah. hold on. Well, I wonder if it's because it's like, uh, I've never thought of Trek as re- really like hinging on, on the romantic storylines. Right. Yeah, not at all. Even in even in Deep Space Nine, like 
you know, we've of course got Kira and Odo and uh, Jadzia and Worf, but, but it, I don't know, it never felt like the, the storyline needed to hang on to the love arc. It was just, yeah. it was just part of their world, which yeah. I always appreciated. Yeah, it was like sort of the the color in the background, sort of like finding out that they have seen study class. It's like, oh, and also they're in love with each other. Yeah. Um, maybe it was just that as a kid, I was like, this needs to be much more central if this is going to be happening. I need <laughs> like a whole thing. Like my dream, and I'll say this out here because I don't write <laughs> fiction, so I can't write this. My dream is for someone to write a series of interconnected romance novels that are set on something like the Enterprise, where oh, every yes. book is like a different couple. Sometimes it'll be two people who work on the ship. Sometimes it'll be an alien. And so you get some space adventure. Mm -hmm. But it's just like such a perfect, um, you know, setting for romance because you have so many people interacting in so many different ways. Yeah. You know, and I just, I there's not a ton of sci-fi romance. And yeah. I... Really? I, yeah, there's some. And I'm mm -hmm. sure there's some that I don't know of. And, you know, um, when I used to review romance novels, there was a series by um, Jesse Mahalik that was coming out then that I really loved that was like an even 50-50 between sci-fi adventure and romance. And it was like perfect just to get <laughs> both of those at the same time because right. they're both such like delicious, enjoyable genres mm -hmm. where you just kind of yeah. like sing and you're like, yes, give me like the world building and the romance and I'm into it. Um, and I... However much there is, it's not enough for me. I would like much more. And so I'm putting this idea out there. <laughs> someone should write it. There we go. Um, I think it's you. Yeah. I think that's someone. Who's no, <laughs> I, this is the problem is I like, I do not write fiction. My brain doesn't do that. <laughs> okay. Um, or if like, this could be the next Star Trek series, you know, Bridgerton meets yeah. Star Trek. I think. Oh my gosh, say less. I'm on it. I, <laughs> I, have, I have an email already drafted. Yeah, let's, let's go. Actually, cut this out so no one steals the idea. Yeah. Story um. credit to me. <laughs> Just very quickly before we have to let you go, <laughs> the episode, the TIG episode with Beverly and the Scottish ghost. So, Rosa, are you not familiar? Oh, you don't know the story about how she, she screws her grandmother's sex ghost? <laughs> I don't remember her this one. Sex I know the one where, oh, are you I know the one where Jordy <laughs> falls in love with the holodeck lady and then meets Lee her in Bronx. real life and is like, Ooh. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Sub Rosa, yeah, yeah, yeah. you absolutely Rosa must seek it out. Oh, yeah. It's a treasure. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. treasure. More you're, you're in for a yes. treat. Oh, yes. I love absolutely. I love exposing people to how exciting. Yeah, the th the Voyager episode threshold, which you mentioned, yeah. mm -hmm. Sub Rosa, or the DS9 episode with the Rumpelstiltskin in it. Those oh are God. the ones that I, I cannot wait to. Yes. I bring it up all the time. I know so I brought wild. it up on the like eight episodes of this podcast, yeah. but it is the wildest episode Absolutely. of Deep Space Nine, hands down. <laughs> and I guess oh. like that just reminded me there is a lot of romance on Next Gen with Riker and alien women, sort of in the, yes. the tradition yes. of Captain Kirk, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like where he goes to that planet where people are genderless mm -hmm. and you're, uh, you know, excluded if you... <laughs> Sorry, I just saw Ken Kendra's quote in the chat. I did fall asleep reading a particularly erotic chapter in my grandmother's journal. This is why they need romance novels yeah. on the Enterprise. They should have some in the library as well. Yeah. Um, that was Crusher's. Uh, that was Crusher's line from Sub Rosa. Um, but yes, the amazing. episode with Riker you're talking about uh, is called uh, the Outsider, right? Yeah. Where it's kind of the, the yeah. non-binary species, which doesn't hold up to today's lens, but was good for the time for yeah, for and was like very clearly, sure. like very clearly, you know, metaphorical for it's like yeah. next generations equivalent of the original series one with the people who are half black and half oh, yeah, yeah. Let that be your last half black mm -hmm. and half white on their faces um you know where it's like 
here are some aliens and we must find empathy because uh-huh. they are different. And it's like, oh, okay. And so Riker has fallen in love and smooching left and right. And those are more involved in the plot usually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's getting seduced. He's doing some seducing. But it doesn't feel like romance to me because it's more just about seduction. Yeah. There's not yeah. a relationship there, which is what you could get when it's people who are coworkers or when you know, the romance is centered in a way that it just isn't on Next Generation because that's not what they're doing, yeah. but but could be. Um, and I would Look, just love to see more right. of that. You had me at Star Trek meets Bridgerton. I say That's that's the pitch right there. If I was yeah. an exec, it's greenlit. Seven seasons in a movie. Let's go. Love it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and all of your fandom and, and geekiness about this, uh, this stuff that we love so much. Um, we want to tell people where they can get your book, The Possibility of Life. Where and when can we grab that? It comes out April 18th. And if this episode happens to air before that, Please pre-order it. Pre-orders are very helpful for authors, and then you get it right away. Um, but you can get it anywhere that books are sold. I hope you do. I hope you enjoy it. There is a lot of Star Trek in there. There's also a lot of other sci-fi and a lot of science. Oh, we love that. I think I think it'll be a great fit for listeners of this show. So yeah, everyone go pre-order or order and check it out. And thank you so much to Jamie Green. Thanks for thank joining Thank you, Jamie. Us. Thank you. This was so much fun. was great okay we have a br- breaking news in the chat our, <laughs> our our producer kevin bartelt has told us that a roustabout these are the these are the definitions of a roustabout an unskilled or casual laborer a laborer on an oil rig dock laborer or deckhand a circus laborer or a variant spelling of rouseabout interesting rouseabout see all right now it sounds like it, it was actually one of those classist words that was like, you know, one of those words that was used to describe that, that basically was calling someone lazy, but it was used to describe like one of the hardest manual labor jobs out there. <laughs> and it's also someone you're not allowed to marry. I forbid you to marry that roustabout. That roustabout. All they do is labor on docks and oil rigs all day. It's like, actually, that sounds like a, a hard <laughs> job that probably has great benefits. Do you think the dock laborers are happy that uh, circus laborers also get to be called roustabouts? If season two of The Wire taught me anything, no. I don't think they're happy that they share a name with circus laborers. (laughs) We used to build carnivals in this country. Uh, All right. Um, Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Do pick up Jamie's book um, mm -hmm. and continue the conversation with her in our absence. Yes, have, in our absence. Have a great day and live long and prosper to all roustabouts and sabatkas everywhere. <laughs> the Pod Directive is hosted by Tawny Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins. Executive produced by Gideon Bauer, produced by Kendra James, and produced and edited by Kevin Bartelt. <laughs>